great book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee. Read it. Talks all about this. Goes into great detail, very simply and accessibly. And in that book, it describes Bible interpretation in two parts like this. Exegesis is drawing out what's in there. We really want to know what's really in there. What can we think might be on the other side of that phone line? And what's, what do we know for sure at the very least is on that, is, is there. <clears throat> and, and so what that is, is we're in 2021. We're about to take a journey to early AD, right? Whatever, whenever this is written, AD 76, whatever. We're going to go over there. And what you want to be careful not to do is go with bags in your hands from 2021. You don't want to go because what we're going is to be historians. We're going to go and get treasure but we got to go empty handed. We can't go in, let's say, to 1 Corinthians 11 and read head covering. And automatically we think it's the little thing or a doily or whatever. We can't just assume that you don't want to take that image in there. You don't want to go to the Gospels and you imagine the chosen. I don't know how you all feel about that, but you don't imagine that those actors and actresses, you don't want to get those people in your head. That's baggage. You want to go empty handed and you want to be faithful to what you can and cannot know. And so you want to go survey the scene in its context best you can. Okay, what's the history? What does this mean? That mean there are certain things that are always going to match marriage, right? There are things that might not match symbol of authority, head covering versus maybe wedding ring, however you want to take that. But you want to go and, and, and examine, and then, so that's exegesis. You go and examine, you grab a bunch of stuff. Now you have baggage. Now you want to bring it back over to 2021, right? And this is the stuff that you found from the scriptures. Paul said X, and you want to bring it to 2021, but there's customs, right? And as you go into customs at the airport, this is the people who check to make sure you don't have a bomb, you're not bringing anything illegal, and you can only bring stuff that translates to 2021. Anything that doesn't translate, you got to figure out what does it mean today? Okay? What is our circumcision today? Because we don't have that as a problem. In fact, probably every male in the U.S., just about the percentages are pretty high. They're going to do that. So what does Paul mean? So, so as you're, this is a study. What I'm about to try to do is take you back. I'm going to reconstruct a bit of the phone conversation, so go with me. And then we're going to try to bring some useful stuff back to 2021 so that on a Tuesday, this will matter to you. You got that? I just wanted to explain that because otherwise it'll be really confusing. Why are we spending so much time with the excavation of truth from back then? It will be like, well, what's the point of this? Well, it's, it's so that we can figure out the phone conversation. It's hard work. Okay, so the first hour will be a study. Second hour will be a little easier. Similar process, but simpler. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So here's some, uh, some stuff that I want you to, to notice. So first, just as we're reconstructing, let's understand what's happening in this letter. This is a letter, okay? And it's a letter in response to the response to a letter. Is that too much? Okay, turn to chapter 5. And look at verse 9. This is part of figuring out what's on the conversation. I wrote to you, this is Paul, I wrote to you in my letter. Okay, 
He wrote a letter. He told them something. What was the content of that letter? It's a forbid, he forbade them from associating with wicked people, sexually immoral. Not at all meaning those of this world, but verse 11, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother and guilty of all these wicked things, including idolatry. Okay, so he wrote a prohibition to them. And what did they do? They wrote something back to him. Okay. Now, and then he responded. Now, in this letter, he didn't just write about what they asked him about. He also wrote about things that he heard from Chloe's people. Here's another fact. Paul planted this church. Okay, so he's their apostle. Because of him, they believed. But at the beginning of the letter, you could turn to chapter 1, verse... Eleven. It has been reported to me, so there's the report, by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So there was division. He calls this in chapter 3, you guys are carnal. You're like worldly men, cowboys, Lakers. But for Christ, for Christians... Is the church divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Did Paul get up from the dead for your justification? No. So, that's their problem. But here's what's happening. They're now arguing with Paul back and forth in these letters. Okay? He wrote them a letter. They wrote him a letter. Now he wrote them another letter, super combative. And I want you to see that what we're looking at in chapter 8. Flip back to chapter 8, verse 1. These are the subjects that he's addressing. Verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols. Chapter 7, flip back over to 7, verse 1, same exact formula. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good, having regard to purity. And then chapter 12, now concerning spiritual gifts. So these people wrote something about marriage, idols, and spiritual gifts. What you don't want to think is that they wrote him generically, hey, Paul, we got some questions about marriage. Hey, Paul, could you help us with spiritual gifts? We're really confused. Hey, Paul, you got any thoughts about idolatry? That's not how they wrote. They wrote very sarcastically, very, um, it was, it was very uh, volatile. And you can see that in chapter four. So that's kind of the picture of some of what's going on. Now, Let's, let's, let's look at a little more. So, chapter 8, verse 1. Now, concern, this is what we're dealing with, idolatry. Now, concerning food offered idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. If you have the ESV, it's in quotes, because probably that's what they were saying. This is their doctrinal defense of their actions. What was happening was, the Corinthians are in, an, in a pagan society, they would go to the temple. They'd basically have like a celebration. It might be like a Christmas party you might think of or for a birthday party. You'd go into this temple. You'd host it. They actually have invitations that says, you are cordially invited to the Hall of Tyrannus or whatever, and you're going to eat this food, and we're gonna, it's going to be a great celebration. In that, there would be eating, there would be drinking, and there would be other stuff, which he alludes to in chapter 10, impurity. Um, but, but 
this was a common thing. This is part of their culture. This isn't like some weird thing. And so you get a bunch of Christians. They're saved. And now they're told there is no such thing as God or as these gods. You're free. You're forgiven. There's freedom in Christ. And they, Paul lived with them for two plus years. He's eating food offered to idols. And they realize, hey, it's all fine. But now, as more and more people are being saved, there are some who, through former association, which he says later in verse uh, 7, some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So, there's a brother who says, I can't do that. I can't be at this feast or I can't, not so much the feast, but I can't go to the market. I see that food. It looks like it's offered to an idol. And the thing is, part of the worship, you didn't just look at it. You ate it. You had to eat to partake in the worship. It wasn't enough to just have it offered. The offering was so that you could eat it. And Paul makes that argument in chapter 10. Turn to 10, right around verse 14. Again, we're reconstructing a little bit, trying to pull a picture together. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. And then he's going to compare idolatry to true worship in the Lord's Supper. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? He's arguing that something is really happening as it relates to worship when we eat the Lord's Supper. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And he, he's going to argue that it really matters. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be participant with demons. So in order to participate in idolatry, you had to actually eat it. Okay. So now you understand why you'd be at the market. You're this believer with a weak conscience. It's kind of difficult. And it's like, I, I can't eat that. Yeah, but it's, there's no such thing as an idol. Yeah, but I can't eat it. And here's what was happening. Go back to chapter eight. Here's what was happening. Verse one, people were saying, get a, get a grip, weak Christian. You have knowledge, Gnosis. You have, you have information that lets you know that there is no such thing as an idol. So eat it. It's no big deal. Get over it, basically. That's the problem, though, okay? Because that's not loving. It's not consistent with love because you're trampling over this Christian for your right to do what you want to do. Okay, so that's part of the picture. Let's, let's go a little bit and let's break up Paul's argument here. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And he's going to compare knowledge and love in the next few verses. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So verse two is knowledge. Verse three is love. Knowledge and love. Knowledge without love in chapter 13 is worthless, he says. If I have faith so as to remove mountains and all knowledge and understand all mysteries, I am nothing. Right? He says that later. Therefore, verse four. So now here's what he's going to do. In four through six, he's going to agree with them. He's going to say, you guys have actual solid doctrine. You guys get it. As to, therefore, as to the eating of food offered idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no, no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, 
as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, so real quick, just a quick note. The problem in Corinth is that they believed more of the gospel than you and I. I mean that. They really did. They were free. They were totally, they had a really good theology. They understood who God was, the oneness of God, that we, there is one true God. And they rightly understood that that means that it really doesn't matter as it relates to matters of indifference. In other words, things that God hasn't given you a word about, Christian, it doesn't matter. You can do what you want, whatever you want. Yes, that's dangerous. That's why the gospel is dangerous. Men like to come and get the gospel and say, well, wait, you can't do this. You can't do that. And obviously we have to do that to ourselves because we have consciences. We ourselves have to give ourselves guardrails at times. There's things I can't do that perhaps you can do. There's things that you can't do that perhaps I can do. But what we have to understand is the gospel frees us from do's and don'ts. Remember, the problem in Galatia was what? Was it circumcision? So what's the solution? You would think uncircumcision, right? Paul says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It actually doesn't matter whether you are or aren't. What matters is faith working through love. What matters is Jesus Christ and him crucified on your behalf. Your sin's forgiven. It's no longer about the forms. You remember the woman at the well? Which mountain do we worship on? Oh, is it this one? No, we're the people of this mountain. No, woman, the day's coming. It won't matter where you worship. That day's here. I'm here. I am the place of true worship. I'm the, I'm the substance. In fact, there's a day where the temple won't be a place. It'll be a people. It'll be a person. Each one of you. We'll talk about that in the next hour. But that's glorious. And they understood that. The Corinthians got it. They really got it. They could do the thing you can't do and that I can't do. They would probably theologically really give us a shellacking over our take on vaccines or no vaccines. They probably really would lay it, lay it to us. Masks or no masks. I'm not going to throw out. I was going to throw out some more controversial controversies, but I'm not going to throw them out. You just you fill in the blank. You put your 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 thing that God has not spoken on that he doesn't care about that you really care about all the isms. Feminism, racism, sexism, conservatism, they're all isms. That's the, there are things of this world that don't matter. Ultimately, some of them matter. But my point is, ultimately, these things are adiaphora. They're things that God, they're matters of indifference. So the Corinthians understood that. You can see that in Paul's response in 8.6 or 8.7, sorry. Sorry, it is 8.6. And in 7, he rebukes them. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. And then he says this again, he kind of confirms in verse eight and nine, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do, do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care. Here's the here's the exhortation. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Now, here's where this is where it gets tricky, guys. And you got to pay real close attention as a Bible student or this will trip you up. Now, what, what I want you to think about is verse nine it does, or verse eight. It doesn't matter whether you eat or don't eat. 
And I want you to think about verse 10, and we're going to compare it to something in chapter 10 that everybody stumbles over, and this is the, one of the main points of confusion. So verse 10, if anyone sees you who have knowledge, you have this doctrine, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered idols? Now, that is really, you got to be careful. Eating where? Okay, now flip over to chapter 10. In verse 25, somebody read that for me. Verse 25, nice and loud. Okay, anything sold in the meat market without asking questions. Now, eat anything where? Market. What did he say in chapter 8? Temple. Now think. (laughs) There's a difference there. The real issue, guys, is the temple. And and the reason we know this is because in chapter 10, he alludes to, in the first five verses, Israel's idolatry. And what they were doing was eating, drinking, and playing, we'll call it. We know what playing is. Impurity. Playing. And he says, basically, that the Corinthians had this idea, it seems, it seems, again, phone conversation, seems that they thought because they took the Lord's Supper and got baptized and all this kind of stuff had spiritual gifts, that they were somehow protected from the dangers of idolatry. So we can go in the temple, there's no God here, we can even eat, and we can partake in other ways. You see that in chapter 6. Again, we'll talk about that a little later. But, but they thought they could be sexually impure, they thought they could eat food offered idols, they thought they could be there because it's not real. And so in one sense, they had it right, you can't eat that meat, but you can't be there participating in worship because Paul says later in 10, it's just like when the Christian participates in the Lord's Supper. Something real is happening. It, guys, if you think your Christianity is this thing that is detached from reality, from heaven, from, from all the things that are glorious, you are se- severely mistaken. If you think there's this gap and disconnection from what you read on a Sunday and what you live out on a Tuesday, you're wrong. You are so wrong. It is so close. It's, you want to know how close it is? Stephen, from the same place you sit, as he's being stoned on earth, if you had this roof not here and you could look in the sky, from the same vantage point, had heaven opened up, it says, behold, I see that heaven's opened up and the the glory of God and the Son of Man at the right hand. Who's the glory? Is that is that the majestic glory? Is that the Father? Is that the he saw it's almost like it's a curtain, like one of these things, like you could peel back the sky and it's right there. It's so close. God is close, but he's closer than that to the Christian. He's even in you. Again, we'll talk about that later. But what I want you to understand is if you think that participation with idolatrous things is nothing like the Corinthians because of doctrine, you're wrong. It matters. You cannot eat food offered to an idol in a temple And he's going to forbid that. Verse, chapter 10, verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You can't do it. You can't go to their table. You can't be there doing that stuff, guys. And you'll see in in 2 Corinthians, in your own study, he warns again. He says it in chapter 6. 
you know, infamous lines about what Belial and uh, the Lord and all that stuff. And then later he says, I fear that some of you will not have repented because apparently maybe they didn't from this letter of the sexual immorality and the idolatry and the different issues that they had. This is serious. You know, one of the things I thought about, I I won't throw my convictions out on you, but I just thought about this. There are certain things that you could do as a Christian where you couldn't do it in the place that you would do it. (laughs) There's certain things and liberties that you have that maybe there was an association with some kind of idolatry in your life. If you do that same thing in the place of worship of pagans, it could be idolatry. I mean, that's well, let's bring let's bring our luggage back here. Let's get it through customs. OK, we don't have pagan temples in America in the same way. But we do have idolatry. We have what covetousness, which is idolatry, it says in Colossians three. Right. Philippians three says there are some people who their God is their belly. He's not talking about food. Mind set on earthly things. You have passions and desires for things down here. Your idolatry could be at Amazon. It could be. But, but it could be other places. And so there are things that don't matter where because of your heart attachment to them, you could be sinning against the living God by your partaking in union with them. That's real. And Paul condemns that in, in Corinth and in chapter 10. So what do we have? We have, we have, here's what we have. We have an apostle. He's at this church. He has essentially told these people, you guys, you think you have a right, but you're sinning. You're sinning against your brother because he doesn't have that right. And you shouldn't go in that temple. And let's look at, go back to chapter eight. Let's look at verse 11 and 12. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now, here's the problem. Here's the big problem. And this is what this is the heart of what I would love for you to take away now. Is that these people were faulting Paul. Essentially, now I'm pulling from the phone conversation and trying to piece this together for us. But they were faulting Paul because he didn't do things like the other apostles. So earlier in the in the letter, when it says, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow Apollos. They were pitting them against one another. They were saying this guy does this. This guy does that. Now, Paul right now is about to make a defense of his apostleship. And it feels weird to anybody studying scripture because it's like this is an odd place. If you just told them, stop using theology to justify your wickedness to do this and then to jump back to rebuking their wickedness. It just seems weird to like now talk about giving, to talk about, you know, his rights. What, what does that have to do with it? Here's what it has to do with everything. Paul is arguing for Christian meekness. He is arguing, arguing for the ultimate Christian meekness. He is arguing you, for meekness that gives up rights that you legitimately have that were blood bought by Christ in heaven that you really could do that you lay for the sake of another. And what is incredible about this is in chapter nine, Paul says he's going to he's going to first argue. I got rights, too. And then he's going to say, but I lay my rights down for you. And the way he does it is so incredible. It is it is the utter. It's the thing that they're actually faulting him for. It's incredible. 
They're faulting him. They're saying, you're not even a real apostle because you don't do the things that everyone else does. And he's going to say, the very thing I don't do, I do it for you. And it proves I'm an apostle. You'll see in a second. So let's just fly through chapter nine really quickly. I want you to see that what I just claim. So let's see if it's true. Be good Bible students about this. So in sorry, I'm sorry. Real quick, before we do that, I just want to I want to define meekness for you. OK, because I, I don't want to assume that we all know what that is. So meekness is in chapter 13. It's where it says the idea is where it says love does not seek itself. In other words, it doesn't crave after its own desires or its own interests. It doesn't. It's the opposite of Philippians 2 and Christ has the idea of coming up with schemes and plans that only have to do with the advancement and improvement of self. It's self-interested plans. Meekness isn't like this. This is essentially meekness. Right. Not choosing your own way. And in America, we hate that. Right. We, We want our rights. Life, liberty and the pursuit of us. Right. Are you familiar with this fruit of the spirit, this part of the fruit of the spirit, gentleness? You guys know what that means? We talked about this last year, at least. What is gentleness? If you were to define it in layman's terms, what is it? See, he knows, but (laughs) we would say soft touch a lot of times. Like, yeah, just touch softly. But yeah, no, it's meekness. It's meekness. It's the same word. It means basically to not take your own rights. It's you know what it is. It's a yield sign. Do you know what a yield sign is? You're driving. It says yield to ramp. Do you know what it's saying to do? You have the right to drive on this road. You, You are totally have the right. But if someone's coming. Say my pleasure, like Chick fil A. My pleasure. Go ahead. You go first. You don't zoom up and try to get in front of the person. Oh, I can make it. I've done that sometimes. Oh, no. (laughs) But meekness is you laying down your right to to go, basically. Now, it isn't phlegmatic. Fancy word that just means it isn't something that just like doesn't care and lets its rights be mastered or taken. Right. Jesus didn't have himself nailed to the cross because he couldn't do anything. He actually actively gave up his rights. It's not passive. It's not a passive thing. Like someone just comes and says, give me your wallet. And they reach in your wallet, your pocket and take it. And you say, oh, okay." No, it's you choosing and saying, here, to have the other cheek. You slap me on this cheek. Okay, here, this one, too. It's it's choosing to yield and give to someone else's pleasure. Indulgence is another word. You indulge, you give way to the pleasure of others. Okay, that's meekness. That's what Paul is arguing for us, for them, and what he's going to explain that he's done for himself. So, chapter 9. Yes? On the inside with that word, like the other day we were in Philippians 4, and uh, it says, Let your gentleness be be made known to all. Mm. Wow. Like, that's an interesting, like, how can it be this, how can it be, to me, those two different things, you know, but yeah. there's another aspect of that word that, I don't know, you just throw that in there next time. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, it's not just real passive, it's very much like, they're aware that you're giving this up. You know? Yeah. Like, it's, totally. You're taking your life from you, this is a reasonable decision I'm making. Yeah. 
I like that. I love to dig into that more. That's, it reminds me of Moses, and it says he was the meekest man in all the earth. Right when he was bringing accusations, they were bringing accusations, he could have said something. He didn't. He laid down his right to argue for himself. He chose to. Moses wrote that, by the way, I think. I mean, can you imagine being the person writing? And Zeke was the meekest man on the face of the earth. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> real humble, Moses. But he's meek, though. Um, but it's a little different than, than humility. But yeah, no, that's great. Reasonableness. So let's look at chapter 9 and let's look at Paul's meekness. Let's fly through this. So in, in chapter 9, this. Paul is definitely arguing for his rights. So in verse 1, he asks four rhetorical questions. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Again, he's arguing for his rights over them. He has to. He's got to link these. Verse 2, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship. So he's, he's really wanting to make it clear that you guys and me, we're connected. He has to do that because he's about to argue for his right to get pay from them. Okay? In verse 3, he, this lets you know, this is part of our research, this lets you know that they were kind of examining or judging him. This is also stated in chapter 4. Um, that they were, they were sort of, he says, it's a small thing that anyone should judge me or any human counsel. And so verse three, this is my defense to those who would examine me because they were. Verse four, do we not have, now he's going to ask some rhetorical questions of some seemingly random rights that he has that the apostles also have, the other apostles, and particularly pay attention to the names he names. Are we, in verse four, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to basically have a little company just like the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Can we bring a wife? Verse six, it's going to get stronger. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Now he's going to get to the heart of a matter. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Anybody finance their, their, uh, their commitment to this country through... Loans, you get soldier loans, like student loans, but for soldiers. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get, borrow money so that I can work for the government, risk my life, possibly die, and then pay it all back. It's charity for the government. I'm, it's funny, actually, if Paul, Paul's saying, like, who, what soldier does that? Nobody does, no soldier. You don't risk your life. Keep that in mind. Who plants a vineyard? without eating any of its fruit. That's silly. I mean, you're either going to get some money, you're going to get some wine, you're going to get some grapes, something. Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So these are very ridiculous, you know, scenarios, but they're obvious, right? Nobody. Those are the answers. And now he's going to substantiate this from Scripture. Verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law also say the same? Now, here's, this is a funny situation because Paul is going to do what we talked about with exegesis. He is going to go back to time before him. He is going to bring it back, and then he's going to translate it through customs for his time and for us. He's going to take a law against having your oxen work really hard with a muzzle on so they can't eat while they're expending energy. And he's going to say, he's basically going to argue from the lesser to the greater and say, if God said, don't do that with oxen, would he say with the greater thing, with men, that he really loves? I don't care. If Jesus argues, 
God cares for the sparrows, how much more for you? Would he not argue the same for oxen to you? I mean, that's kind of the logic there. That's the reasoning. Okay, so does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does not does he not certainly speak for our sake? It is written. It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Verse 11. This is a very again, it's like a it's a silly thing if you think about it. He shouldn't have to say this, but it's true. If we have and the picture is farming, if we have planted spiritual things in you, is it too much if we now reap some of the harvest? Again, getting back to the, that imagery of the vineyard. If we reap material things from you? You know, in Luke 8, it says that Jesus healed a bunch of women and they followed him and then they supplied for him out of their means. The high standing women. No. <laughs> they supplied for him out of their means, right? But I I remember reading that and thinking, man, that feels weird reading that Jesus got money from these women. Feels like he's like mooching off of them. And then I went back and it's like he healed them. He cast out seven demons out of Mary. Is it too much that he get a little bit of the money? No, no. If the Lord healed me, if I couldn't walk and now I'm walking and working a job and I got money, you better believe I'm giving him a lot of it. As much as I can because he's done the greater thing. That's how Paul's arguing here. I just, guys, I ministered the gospel to you. Your sins are forgiven. Is it, a, is it too much that you give me a little bread? Like literal bread? Maybe some clothes, a shirt or two? Is, it, is that a big deal? He's saying it to their shame to some degree. Now, verse 12, and again, he's, gonna, he's comparing and contrasting just like they are with Cephas, Apollos, and others. If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, We have made no use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Now, right there, he's literally saying it would be an obstacle for the gospel if we took money from you guys. So those are our rights, but we won't take them because it would hinder you getting the truth. That's what we perceive. That's shameful. Now, keep going. Do you not know that those, he's going to, similar examples, those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings in the same way. Now he's going to appeal to Jesus' commands in Matthew 10. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Remember when it said the laborer deserves his wages. Interesting thing about that word wages, it's the same word he's about to use for reward. Wages and reward, exact same word. Let's keep going. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. And there's a good reason why. Now, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Okay, real quick. What he's saying, what he's saying is, Preaching the gospel, I have to do because I'm a slave. And the reward I get cannot come from preaching the gospel. There's no reward. I have to do it. It's my stewardship. It's, it's, it's what I exist to do, okay? But he's about to say, okay, he, listen, real quick. He's saying for the gospel, 
I don't get paid. It's basically what he's saying when he says reward, okay? And then he's going to say, what then is my reward? It really is the same word for wages. What then is my pay? Keep going. Let's go. Let's go with this. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Verse 17, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. Okay, if he did it on his own will, he has, it. basically he earned it. But he didn't do it of his own will because he's a, he's a steward. It, he's, it's necessities laid upon him. So he doesn't get paid for that. Okay, so then, okay, Paul, basically what he said, why do I not take pay for the gospel if the Lord commanded that those who preach the gospel should get their wages from the gospel? Why don't I get paid? I do get paid by not getting paid. What? Okay, verse 18, keep going. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free of all, I've made myself a slave to all that I might win more of them. In other words, Paul is saying my pay is that I don't get pay. The very thing that the Corinthians are faulting him for, the very thing they're saying, you're not even a real apostle. You know, Paul or, you know, Cephas, Apollos, all the other apostles, James, Jude and the boys, they all travel with a wife. They all eat and drink from us. They all get paid. But you don't, Paul. And you're not real. In fact, who are you to tell us that we can't associate with those guilty of sexual immorality and such and greed and drunkenness? Who are you to forbid us from associating with certain sinners? In fact, that's why they had the guy in First Corinthians five and he has to rebuke them sternly. They're, they're really like loose in this whole thing and they're questioning his authority to bring commands to challenge them. And they're pointing to his life and saying, Paul, you are you are not consistent. One, you don't accept pay Two, you eat food offered idols. We're all conf- we're confused about that. How do you eat food offered idols and then tell us that we can't? Well, I'm telling you, you can't eat in the temple. One, I'm also telling you that you can't sin against a brother. Your freedom apart from love is, is, your, is your stumbling point. Now, let me show you that I do the same thing, Paul's saying. I have a right to eat and drink. I have a right to do all the things of the other apostles. I even have a right to get paid by you. Who is a realtor without some of the commission? Who manages properties without, who does that? Who finances the tenants? Who gives them the rent out of their own pocket? Nobody, nobody. And am I not? And who farms without getting some of the proceeds? Is it too big a deal if I plant and farm spiritual things in you and reap a few dollars or a few provisions? But I'm not writing to get that. In fact, I don't want it. That's my pay. I will not accept it because you guys would stumble over it. That's my payment. My payment is no payment. My payment. In other words, my glory, my What satisfies me is that I can offer it to you for free and that you guys are saved. That's incredible. That's incredible. Paul is some kind of man. Because here's the thing. The very thing that they, it's like, I mean, could you imagine if you gave up your rights and you giving it up would cause people to not receive you, to not think highly of you. They would actually reject you. They would fault you for your meekness. That's what it is to be a Christian. When you actually are actively in a situation and someone comes and they want they want something from you and you say, 
go ahead and have it. And then they confuse it for weakness and say, see, you're not even blank. See, you're not even strong. You're not even real. You're not even this. You're not even that. And they misunderstand your love. That's what's happening with Paul. Let's keep going real quick and we'll finish here. Verse 19, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself, not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. He's, he's trying to win. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Yes, he can save people. He can win them. Save their souls. Verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. And then he gives this final exhortation through a picture of the Olympics. Do you not know that in a race, everybody's running, but there's only one that receives the prize? The winner, right? So run that you may obtain it. It's not saying there's one prize. It's saying that there's one way to run to win it. Self-control. Verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. He's, he's saying the thing that we win is much more valuable. And ultimately, if you go back to what he said, it's souls. I do it all that I might save some or win some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that it, by all means I might win some. Again, they're faulting him for his meekness. He, in one instance, he eats meat in the marketplace. In another, you see later in chapter 10, he says, if someone says to you, that's been offered to an idol, he says, oh, yeah, I don't want to eat that. Because he doesn't want them to stumble over what they think is wrong. So he says, no, that's ultimate meekness. That's Christian meekness. And he's saying, you got to do that, guys. Verse 26, so I do not run without direction is basically what that word means. I do not box as an air swinger, right? You box and you beat the air, you lose. You don't get points. But I discipline or beat my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What happens when someone's disqualified? What, what immediately is, what is now uh, true about them? They can no longer what? They can't win. Everything they do is worthless. Guys, everyone that you hear preach on this is going to tell you that that's about him going to hell. I think that there's a sense in which maybe Paul is, is going to go to disqualification being you being disqualified and maybe somehow it, it reveals that you're not really hit. But I don't think that's what he's, I don't think that's probably what his heart is. His heart is... Here you are at a meal or at a feast or you're doing something. A person sees you do something that they trip over. And now everything you do after that can't be heard. You can't win that person. You can't win that soul. That's the point. The point is winning souls. But that's what, he, that's what the Christian life's about. It's not about fear of you falling away. It's about your love for Christ, wanting others to know him. And that's, that's what Paul wants them to know. And so he's rebuking them with his own character toward them and his own meekness and giving up his rights for them. Be like Tom Brady as it relates meekness. Do everything, relentless pursuit. So I want to end with this little bit of questioning. What are your rights that keep people from hearing the gospel? Even in your own home, what are the things that you do 
that you justify with scripture. I'm talking to me, too. I'm not just talking to you. My family will know. Or maybe my wife will know. They know my rights. No, 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 no. Bible says this. We can't do that. I could I could do this. Right. What are those things that you do, though, that you that you basically commend that your family trips over and thinks you're evil and they're wrong. But you do it anyway because you don't have love. You aren't willing to lay down your right. It is a legitimate right, but you're not willing to let it go. What about others outside your home? Do you have political freedoms that hinder people who might otherwise hear the gospel? You know that that doesn't matter, right? It does not matter. Real quick side note, Romans 14. Do you know what that's basically about? Let's sum it up in just a, a sentence or two. In the church, you will have people who have opinions. Yes, they are opinions that disagree vehemently in opposites of each other. Some are right, some are wrong, and they are to exist together, and they don't have to correct each other because both are trying to honor the Lord. And God expects that you would coexist together because of love and meekness, and that some would set aside their rights, and they would recognize, hey, I think different than you on that, and for me, that would be sin, but I'm not going to condemn you. And the other to say, I think different than you, and... For me, that wouldn't be sin, but you, you don't know that that's wrong. You're weak, but I'm not going to despise you. I'm not going to think ill of you because you're trying to honor the Lord. And you look like you're sinning to me because I couldn't do that, but you're trying to honor the Lord. And if I'm honest, God hasn't given a word on vaccines, GMOs, certain things in our country's history with race, policy, politics, frankly, I mean, if you go look at what was what Jesus said when different political things or different other things were brought to him, a lot of times it ain't the answer that you expect when events are brought to him. He says, repent or same thing is going to happen to you when certain things are brought to him. So. But but what are those things, though, because you're going to you guys are going to clash. That's how it's supposed to be. What are those things? And as long as y'all can clash and still communicate and still love then you're okay. It's if you clash and one closes the other off and now nah, I dismiss you, I despise you, uh, I judge you, condemn you, you're in sin. That's where you're going to have problems. And, and that problem goes to another gospel. But what are those rights that you're saying, I got to have this strong person that hinders people from hearing the gospel? What about alcohol freedoms, doctrinal f- freedoms? What about supposed Freedoms with your money. You have goals, dreams that cause you to say, we're not going to give to orphans or widows or the missionaries who serve them. We're going to give to ourselves. Marriage. Do you have a bad marriage and you recognize, theologically, I could actually get out of this marriage without technically being viewed as a sinner. Yes, but that, would that hinder the gospel? Would that help your family? It wouldn't. I'm not talking about if your spouse refuses to stay and they leave you. That's different. Good brethren have experienced that. But specifically, the one who thinks they'll find an excuse to do it and they give some reason or cite some right that authorizes them to actually divorce a consenting spouse spouse through some spiritual technicality. You could learn from Paul. Lay down your rights. Love. Choose to turn the other cheek in a sense. Anyway, that's the heart of it. 
I didn't, I didn't really want to bring out a bunch of application. I just wanted you to see. I mean, next time you read chapter 8, really read it. Understand the dynamics. It's incredible, 1 Corinthians, what's going on there. And so my hope is that you guys would have a really good understanding of that problem and learn from Paul's example and character. Amen. That was way longer than I'd hoped. All right. See you next hour.